I wanted to say in the first talk, thank you, to give credit to the man that I got so many wonderful ideas from. When, when you do study context, you want to go there yourself first, and you want to spend a long time there, and thankfully Ruby gave me a lot of advance notice, so I've spent a lot of time in Matthew 26 making observations. But this man, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, helped me a lot in his commentary entitled All Authority in Heaven and Earth. Uh, it was expensive, so I got the Kindle version. But uh, my, my husband's a seminary student, so he has a lot of good books. And this next book I got um, has helped me a lot in this talk, and I wanted to credit Dr. Richard Gaffin, Jr., his latest book called The Word and Spirit has a great chapter on suffering that helped me a great deal. I happened to go to church with him, and I'm in a Bible study, and I told him, asked him to pray for this, and I said, you know, I just ripped off tons of what you had to say. And he said, well, I got all of it from somebody else. You go ahead. So I have his permission. <laughs> a lot of what we'll talk about today, he helped me get through. And... Um, that's only on the theological level. Getting through it other ways will be challenging for all of us, I'm sure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your eternal, rich word that we can never plumb the depths of and that is to us such a solace and comfort. We thank you, Father, that in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son, and that we have your son's testimony in this great word of yours, and we have the spirit given to us as a guarantee, as a a guide uh, for all of our um, reading, studying, meditating, memorizing of your word. Lord, we ask that you would bless this time by your spirit and your word right now, that you would uh, help me, I'll say what is true, help the ears that are here hear what you would have for them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to a much-quoted forefather of the United States, Benjamin Franklin supposedly said once, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Thankfully, though, in Matthew 26, 29, and Mark 14, 25, Jesus takes our eyes from the cross to heaven, and he makes this promise and guarantee. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Luke 22, 16, and 26 shares it this way. Jesus saying, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus is coming back for us. This is a sure statement. More sure than death and taxes. This is real hope for every believer. Theologians call this an eschatological truth. And eschatology, or the return of Jesus, is inseparably linked to suffering for a Christian. 
In our last session, we learned that the Lord's Supper helps us to experience afresh the union with Christ. When we are weary or doubting or fearful or guilt-ridden, frustrated, proud, anxious, we are to come to the bread and the wine and receive them as a sign of our union with Christ and a means of our communion with him. Throughout the Bible, there is a theme of marriage. In Isaiah 54, it talks about union this way. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, it says it this way. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yet, while we wait for his return, questions about suffering naturally arise. Are all Christians going to suffer, or just a special few? Is suffering to be sought out by the Christian? When will suffering end? How will suffering end? What does it mean to suffer for Christ? What does the Bible mean when it says we're to fill up Christ's sufferings? And hardest of all, why do we suffer? A better understanding of the New Testament's teaching on the connection between Christ's return and our suffering will help us earnestly long for that great day when we shall eat and drink anew in the kingdom. Between the resurrection of Christ and the day of Christ's return, what are we to expect as his church? What does God promise us during this in-between of his resurrection and his return? Well, let's begin with answering the question, Are all Christians to suffer? And if you have a pew Bible, turn to page 965. And in your Bibles, if you have them, please turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 11. Again, the pew Bible page is 965. It will help you a lot to have this in front of you. Get a little light on this question. Are all Christians to suffer? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11 is as follows. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Here in verse 7, Paul tells us that in this life, we, meaning they're all the people in the church at Corinth, and meaning they're all of us, uh, we have this treasure. And the treasure is the Sunday school answer for all little kids. Jesus. <laughs> the treasure is Jesus. Jesus, our union with Christ, the risen Lord and his gospel. And the pots of clay are our mortal bodies. A clay pot is temporary, fragile, and weak. If you ever go to Greece, somebody was wanting to go to Europe. Taking a trip to Europe. If you ever get to Greece and you go to their national museum, you will see shards and 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 shards of clay pots. There are lots of broken pots because they're fragile, they're plentiful, they're cheap, which is a great picture for our mortality and human weakness. And inside these fragile pots, we carry the priceless treasure of Jesus. Paul, in this passage, also makes it known that during our earthly lives, our psychophysical experiences, our psychological experiences, our physical experiences, will not be free from difficulty. We are all afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Believers will, quote, always be carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. So these two statements, the dying of Jesus and the life of Jesus, are not to be seen as two separate things for the believer. According to Paul here, the life of Jesus is revealed in our mortal flesh and nowhere else. Let's say that again. According to Paul, the life of Jesus is revealed in our mortal flesh and nowhere else. Because of our union with Christ, when we suffer as Christians, our sufferings are the sufferings of Christ. Now think about the metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 that Jesus is the head, right? And we make up the many other parts. So Christ's body is Christ and us. Paul tells us that we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 1 Peter gives us a metaphor about believers where we're living stones, being built up into a spiritual house, where Christ is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is a king, but kings have kingdoms. Jesus is the head, but heads usually have bodies. Right? Jesus is the Messiah or Savior, and Messiahs have a people they need to save. Jesus is a bridegroom, and the bridegroom usually has a bride to love and to cherish and care for. 
So the body of Christ suffers as his members, us, suffer. Another scripture that shows a close connection between the Christian suffering and the resurrection is Philippians 3.10. It's on page 981 in the Pew Bible. And if you'll turn there, really like you to see, it's just one verse, but looking at it carefully will help us. Philippians 3.10 says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This sharing in Christ's sufferings on Paul's part is not unique to him because of his status as an apostle. While there is some of that in the Bible, this is not one of those cases. This suffering is something we all share. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.7 that the whole congregation shares in his suffering. And like us, he says in Philippians 3 that every gain he previously had is nothing compared to the gain of knowing Christ. Let's think about this a minute. What gains did Paul have? Well, he had a noble lineage, right? Hebrew of Hebrews. For those of you familiar with his bragging on himself, uh, he had works of righteousness according to the law above all of his fellow Hebrews. He had the right education. He brags on his teacher. He's kind of a well-known person, Gamaliel. Exceptional training by the best teachers. He was feared by his enemies because of his political prowess, power, and connections. If he went to Ruby for a physical before he came to Christ, he would look normal, even well off. But if Ruby examined him after he wrote 2 Corinthians 11, he would likely have shown the signs of malnutrition, from his many imprisonments, scars from his countless beatings, from 40 lashes to being beaten with rods to being stoned and shipwrecked. Yet this is what he has to say. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now notice this. His experience of Christ involves the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to death. Notice especially the order of our union with Christ is not, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, then I'm going to get resurrected. But first, significantly, he says, is resurrection. Then I know the power of his resurrection. Then, suffering and death that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Resurrection, suffering and death, 
These are not three separate ideas in this verse. When we were dead in our own sins, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we were saved by grace and raised up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ. When we were saved, we were seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been resurrected already. And not yet. You heard that little phrase before, already, not yet. Already we're there. But not quite yet. Are we there? And Christ's resurrection power is ours in our suffering and death. So we can endure. So we can overcome. Suffering and death in this passage is like one thing. And it's there to analyze and develop the idea of resurrection. So for you English majors out there, it's not uh, three, three items listed with commas. You know, I went to the grocery to get eggs, milk, and butter. It's not eggs, milk, and butter. It's more like, I went to the grocery and got eggs and milk. So I'm explaining to you kind of what the grocery is by giving you a little more detail about what you can get when you go there. And so here Paul is telling us that the power of the resurrection is together with our suffering and death. Let me tell you more about resurrection. For you, my beloved children, it's about suffering and death. The power of his resurrection just is the fellowship of his sufferings. With us while we are still in these mortal bodies. Example let's say you have an adult child and they come to you with a need. Their car needs brakes and new tires, rotors, everything. But they just don't have the funds. And because they're united to you, you're going to give it to them out of your abundance. And you don't give them that money weekly as an allowance for doing nothing, right? You give it to them when they need it. Have you ever faced a disappointment or a fear and called out to the Lord and received out of his fullness all you need to face that disappointment or fear in some surprising and unique way? This is his resurrection power at work. In your suffering. All believers have access to this power of his resurrection. In their suffering. Because he's adopted you into his family. So since suffering is for all of us. Hopefully I established that. Is suffering then to be sought out by the Christian? And when will it end? Suffering is not an imperative or a command to be obeyed. It's not like God says, go forth and suffer. It's not a command. It's it's not an imperative statement. Suffering is a condition that comes with being adopted into Christ. So suffering doesn't have to be sought. So I have a couple of friends. They've all been adopted from the Far East. 
Okay? They would have, had not been adopted, grown up in Korea, South Korea, and China. These gals, I know. But all of them were adopted by Christians from the United States. And they grew up, because they were adopted by Christians in the United States, they grew up in the American culture, for good or for bad. (laughs) And they grew up in a Christian culture in their homes. And this isn't something they sought out. They were babies. They didn't know what was happening to them. It just happened to them that these people came and adopted them into their family and brought them home here. And they got whatever comes with that family. Not because they sought it out. Not because it was a command. Not because they were being obedient to somebody telling them something. But just because they were adopted. They got in that family. And they got what came with that family. So suffering should not be glorified as an end goal that we pursue in and of itself. Paul assures us that suffering will end one day because it comes only with mortality. Uh, Page 961 in your Pew Bible or 1 Corinthians 15 tells us we will not always be in this mortal body but eventually we will put on immortality. The perishable will put on the imperishable. And as 2 Corinthians 5.4 reminds us, after being in this tent, before we were a clay jar, now we're a tent, very temporary again. We're in this tent groaning and being burdened. What is mortal, though, will be swallowed up by life. Isn't that a great phrase? What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So suffering will end, but while we're in this life, suffering with Christ continues as a primary distinguishing characteristic of Christian existence. So we will all suffer, We don't need to seek it out, praise the Lord. Suffering will end one day, praise the Lord. But how will suffering end? Now, some have held that what Paul is discussing here only holds for part of church history. And it's bound to give way to better days when the gospel will have spread and have greater influence in the world. And the only problem with that idea is that the scriptures in Romans 8 clearly teach that our present suffering as believers continues until glorification. Beginning at verse 18, the final point, the the end or the terminus of suffering is the end of the sufferings of the present time. I think that's a great phrase to talk about the time that we're in. The sufferings of this present time is, the end of that time is, in verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. That sounds a lot like resurrection to me. The revealing of the sons of God. That is the adoption that is certain to take place at Christ's return in the resurrection of the body. Until Christ returns, then, all Christian existence 
continues to be suffering with Christ. Well, what does it mean exactly to suffer for Christ? We often understand the fellowship of his sufferings as, let's say, persecution that follows upon an explicit witness of Christ and lands us in jail or makes us a martyr. Or perhaps intense physical suffering. Or maybe economic hardships that might result from taking a stand for the gospel. And these things are truly suffering. Not denying that. But is that the quality of suffering we need to participate in the sufferings of Christ? If so, why do so many of us, and maybe it's only me, never experience or rarely experience that level of suffering? The fellowship of his sufferings can be more easily understood if we can look at it more broadly than we typically do. Let's look again at Romans 8, 18. Paul tells us that our involvement in the sufferings of this present time means we are living in a time of comprehensive subjection of the entire creation to futility, to frustration, to decay, and to pervasive, exhaustive weakness. Now, our doctors in the room, they, they see it more often than maybe some of us. But as we're getting older, we're seeing it more and more. For the believer, suffering for Christ includes all difficulties of this present time. Things like misunderstandings with your boss or your spouse, a flat tire or running out of gas on the way to the place you're supposed to speak that day, or a spill on the carpet or... You know, God always gives you things. As I'm leaving the house with my coffee in my bag, my coffee, hmm, just about a quarter of it, went into my bag, all over the notebook, and all over uh, everything. So this life, due to the fall, is broken and under a curse. Since Adam, things just don't go the way they're supposed to. All believers undergo the miseries of this life and the indignities of the world, the infirmities of Christ's flesh, and the temptations of Satan. Peter reminds us that suffering for wrongdoing is not suffering for Christ. Okay, so we're getting an idea of what it is. It could be any of these hard things. It should be going better today, but it took me three hours to get out of the house because the baby's diaper just kept getting dirty, right? had those days. Also, suffering for Christ is only in the case of believers, those who are united to his body, because those in rebellion against God endure the same afflictions. Their tires go flat too if they're unbelieving, but they go through this present age getting their tires flat as sons of Adam. And they still have his curse on them until they repent and come to Jesus. But the elect have participation with the Son of God so that all those miseries that are in their own nature accursed 
are helpful for our salvation. Romans 8 tells us that we and the creation itself suffer inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons. We're already adopted, but we're waiting for adoption. We're already, but not yet. The redemption of our bodies will one day come. We're predestined by God to this end, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. This is our hope. And while we're already forgiven our sins through Christ, with the resurrection of our body, so there's the already, we're already forgiven from the moment we're united to Christ by faith. But one day with the resurrection of our bodies will come a full public acquittal of all of our sin so the world will not misunderstand us anymore. But they will totally understand that Jesus paid it all. I have no righteousness of my own. It will be said full and publicly. In the meantime, in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Helper doesn't do suffering for us, but he is with us in our suffering and helps us to suffer with hope. So this givenness, it's a given now from what I'm saying. In the scriptures, it's a given that Christian suffering exists and needs to be stressed among us. Suffering with Christ is nothing less than the condition of being adopted, like those friends of mine. Remove the suffering that comes with our adoption and you take away our our identity as the children of God are being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is expressed most literally in Philippians 1.29. It has been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Notice again that Paul does not say, oh, faith is common to all believers, but suffering is only for those special few. He doesn't say that. Suffering is for us all. It's part of being united to Christ. It's what it means to be a believer. What Paul is teaching here is that the Christian life is not only believing, but also suffering. All Christians suffer. The sufferings of Christ need not be sought. They are present in this broken world. They end at the resurrection of the dead when our mortal bodies are swallowed up with life. But why do we suffer? And what does it mean to fill up Christ's suffering? When I was four and my sister was six, we lived in a one-way street in Alabama, and we had been disciplined for something. It was probably my fault. I don't remember. Uh, And we were both... My dad disciplined with spanking, and we were both in our bedroom crying. And my older sister said, Daddy doesn't love us. He spanked us. And my sage advice to my older sister, overheard by my dad, he loved to tell this story, was, Daddy loves us. He only spanks us when we be bad. 
<laughs> he only spanks us when we be bad. Romans 8, 29, it's on page 944, Pew Bible, tells us that God's target and electing purpose for us is conformity to his image, to the image of his son. The pattern of our transformation is conformity to Christ. We're going to be like him. That's what he's saved us from sin and the penalty of sin, and he is transforming us to look like our family. And our lives will follow this pattern of his, the pattern his life followed. And you know what that is? We talked about it all morning. Suffering, then glory. In Mark ten thirty nine, Jesus said to his disciples, You will drink of the cup I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And until he comes again, the concrete form of a Christian's fellowship with Christ is the cross. Jesus tells all his disciples that a servant is not greater than his master. And again, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. We should not think that for Jesus' disciples, taking up their cross is a burden in addition to all the other commandments. And we've got the 1 through 10 commandments, and now we've got this 11th commandment. We've got to take up our cross on top of all that other stuff. No. Rather, cross-bearing is like the umbrella, the overarching, comprehensive picture or configuration of our obedience to Christ. Leaving glory. Christ's whole life was a sort of perpetual cross. He left glory. He came into a fallen world in humility as a child. He died on a Roman cross as a criminal. So too, our lives as Christians are a continual cross. I am sure that at some point in your life, whether you're a daughter or an employee or a mother, you have left an environment that was pleasant and entered into another sphere or world that was filled with difficulty. Right now, I have left my home in Bowie, Maryland. I've been gone for about a year and a half living at my sister's. I live now to serve my 101-year-old mother, with dementia. She can't do any of her own daily personal hygiene. She doesn't know who I am. Perhaps others bear that extreme financial burden of providing their elderly parents with professional care. Why do we do this? Why? Because she's my mother. And because God's word tells us that children are to honor their parents. Being part of the family of God means for me right now that I pick up my cross daily and take care of my mother. So now we know why we suffer, to grow more like Christ. But what does it mean in that obscure verse in Colossians to fill up Christ's suffering? 
I'm going to take a stab at what it might partially mean. So look at page 893 for Colossians 1.24, where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Christ's afflictions, being referred to here by Paul, is his suffering and death on the cross or his humiliation. Whatever the lack is that's being filled up, it is certainly not anything to do with Christ's atoning sacrifice being deficient or needing supplementation by us. The whole point of Colossians up into that verse is that Christ is all-sufficient for salvation in his person and work. So now we got that out of the way, what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? Because the church is called to suffer for Christ, there is a divinely appointed requisite of suffering to be endured by all of his people. Because we know we all suffer for him. As the Father sent his Son into the world, he sends us, his church, into that same world until Jesus returns. The church in its mission is engaged in suffering that will make us more like Christ, and this will express to the world Christ's life. Going back to that verse about we're always caring about the dying of Christ in our mortal bodies, and this will express Christ's life to the world. We are united to him, and because of that, our sufferings are his and are filling up not any lack in his salvific work, but the lack we have in our conformity of being like his son. We need to be conformed to his image, not for salvation or merit, but to be like our family. Our suffering can't hasten the day of his coming. But in Ephesians 2.10, it tells us there are good works foreordained for us to do. As we do them, we fill up his sufferings. We're suffering, he suffers. We suffer to be conformed to his image. That's a beautiful thing. In Revelation 6.11, there are martyrs under the throne asking, When will the day of the Lord come? And they are told that during this present time, these sufferings will continue, quote, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. People, we don't know yet, and probably the least we expect, are among this number. And we travel along in this veil of tears to God's glory, and we suffer to be more like him, and so we might be a light to the world. This is the church's mission, to speak for him and suffer for him. So finally... I want to point out that there is a difference between Christ's suffering and ours. We've talked 
an hour about his suffering. We're talking this hour about our suffering, but there is a difference, however. There's a difference between when Christ was here historically suffering and the Christian suffering today. And this harkens back to the burden I pointed out earlier in Matthew 26 when he was so alone, forsaken and betrayed by all. For Christ, there was no fellowship in suffering, only the blind insensitivity of disciples all the way, and that awful climax of isolation and being forsaken by God and abandoned to his wrath on the cross. For believers, suffering is participation in the life and power of their Savior. As long as, uh, for believers, uh, uh, participation they have is seriously misunderstood. As long as we see suffering as sporadic moments or, and I've said this myself, it was easy to come to, this is just a season. Just a temporary season, my mommy. It's just a season of hardship and suffering. That's, for, that's the wrong way for me to think about suffering. For us, it's a fellowship which his power has made perfect in our weakness. His limitless power manifested through the medium of our pervasive and extreme weakness. We are weaker than we think. He is stronger than we perceive. Paul reminds us that, quote, he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. He suffered alone, rejected by men. The Father turned his face away so that we might never be alone. We never suffer alone. We're already resurrected and have the power of his resurrection. He is with us. His and his spirit to be with each of us so that we might overcome Paul is not alone in reminding us of the connection between suffering, holiness, and glory. James teaches us to, quote, count it all joy when we meet various trials, because it is the course of maturity and conformity to our Lord. After I studied this, all these verses meant so much more all of a sudden, because <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't any longer trapped into seeing them as sporadic temporary things I'm going through. This is the course of my life to the resurrection. First Peter tells us in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, it's page 1016 in your Bibles, if you want to go there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I always felt that way. Why is this happening to me? You know? Well, it shouldn't be strange to us. It is the course of our life here, immortality, in these jars of clay. But rejoice 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I don't suffer like the unbeliever. I'm not under the curse of Adam any longer. I suffer with Christ. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The purpose of our suffering is so we might be conformed to Christ. I'd like to turn to uh, page 1008 in the Pew Bibles and the rest of you, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. I know this is a lengthy little portion, but I couldn't figure out somewhere else to cut it. No one speaks better than the Lord here. So in addition to Paul sharing these things, in addition to James, in addition to Peter, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, we are not alone in our struggle. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to look to Christ, looking to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't grow weary. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He only spanks us when we be his bed. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as what seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are his family. Each one of us struggle in this life. This struggle is training us in righteousness. We need to work our our salvation with fear and trembling while we suffer in this mortal flesh. The tool that God uses by the Spirit to will and to work his good pleasure is our suffering. 
in this fallen world. And one day, it will be over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you suffered uh, in such amazing ways. The eternal Son of God come in the flesh. The perfect human who was God took upon himself and suffered and died alone such that we might be able to say we are seated with him in the resurrection and that we have his resurrection power and he never asks us in this long earthly journey to suffer by ourselves. We thank you, Father, that suffering is not just something we're going through maybe right now and later it'll go away, but that suffering is part of a process of being adopted into your family. And whether it's spilling coffee all over your notes before you get up to use them or whether it is being that 101-year-old person who can't even remember who they are. These struggles, Lord, are our struggles in the flesh, sufferings that are shared by Christ in his body. And these things, Lord, are meant to conform us to be more like the Son, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness, not to merit us your good favor, but because we have it. We can rejoice in all these things and know that one day after suffering, there will be glory. Amen.